bloody business. Welcome to this bloody business. I'm your host, indie filmmaker Andrew Johnson Schmidt. Each episode, we talk to the creative people behind the movies that make us scream in terror and delight. From the best boy to the final girl, these are the people who bring our nightmares to life. Tonight's episode is part two of our three-part interview with Deep Cuts horror filmmaker Gary Sherman. This is the guy who made the last great practical effects film, Poltergeist 3, and showcased actor Donald Pleasance six years before Halloween in the subway cannibal film Deathline. Tonight, we'll be finding out about Dead and Buried, his zombie movie set in small-town America that continues to build a rabid fan base to this day. Here's part two of my interview with Gary Sherman. From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth. Fear so intense it will stay with you to the grave and beyond. I I was never going to do another feature film after what happened with AIP. I was so upset that, you know, Europe accepted this film with open arms. And, uh, and yet in my own home country, um, it, uh, nobody knew it. It was just thrown away as a piece of shit. And, um, I said, you know what? I make a really good living doing commercials and maybe I'll dabble in some television, but cause I was getting offers to do television and, um, I said, but I'm never going to make a feature film again. And then knock, knock, knock on my door. And I opened the door and here is this maniac named Ron Chusette, <laughs> who had gotten my address from somebody. I mean, you know, we didn't have an email and stuff back then. Um, and I had just moved to Los Angeles from Jay and Laddie had dragged me back to L.A. And, uh, you know, to do that, I actually was doing some television stuff for Jay, because Jay was at first artist. And, and, um, uh, and they kept talking to me. I, I would write, you know, I was writing features, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to dive in and direct anything. And, um, but they were trying to talk me into doing something and, they were really, they've really been my mentors my whole career. Um, and I didn't care, you know, I mean, listen, I, I had money. I, I wasn't, you know, commercials had been very, very good to me. Then Ronnie just kept going on and on and on about, I love Deathline and you got to make another movie. Meantime, I was making television movies and stuff because television is so ephemeral. You know, it just happens and it's gone and it's quick and it's boom. And you have more control because there's no time for people to change things. And um, uh, and more people see your work on a television movie at that time than, it, 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 than, than people had seen Star Wars. I mean, you know, it just... Uh, so there was a gratification in um, 
due to him. And so anyway, so that's what I was doing. And Ronnie says, you got to stop making television. You got to make another movie. And here's the script. And I want you to do this script. And it was dead and buried. And he just went on and on and on with me and would not take no for an answer. And so it was almost nine, eight, 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 nine years later. I, I hadn't even thought about doing a feature. I'd written some, but I wasn't going to direct any. And, um, and there I was doing Dead and Buried. And he just said, you're the only person who can do Dead and Buried. Combine the comedy and the horror the way you did in Deathline. And, um, him. So I did Dead and Buried. And uh, him, which I got to say, I never had more fun shooting a movie than I did Dead and Buried. It was just a blast. We had the best time. And, uh, and then, then the nightmare started when PSO bought the production company bought Aspen Productions, which was the company that made it. And, and Avco Embassy, which, was, which Bob Ramey was the president of then, um, they only, it was only a negative pickup for them. They didn't make the movie. And so they didn't have control. And Bob Ramey just fought for me like a banshee. And Mark Damon came in and wanted to make all these change from PSO came in and made wanted to make all these changes. He actually said to me, he said, you know, it's a good movie, Gary, but uh, if I wanted Bergman to direct a horror film, I would have fucking hired Bergman. So now let's stop trying to make some fancy movie and let's make a horror film. And he just wanted all kinds of stuff changed. And Bob Ramey fought him tooth and nail. And finally, I got caught in the middle and, and Jay and Ramey talked. His Jay was still like my mentor. And, and they decided that I should just walk away. And Bob said to me, and Jay said, start another movie. Go do another movie right now. Just walk away from Dead and Buried and go make another movie. Uh, and Ramey said, I'll find a movie for you. You'll do a movie here at Avco. And that became Vice Squad. And uh, which really is kind of my favorite of my movies. Um, I mean, I love Deathline because Deathline is my firstborn. But Vice Squad was a film that I had total freedom on. Bob Ramey told me, I guarantee you nobody's going to fuck with this movie. Nobody's going to screw with you. It's, it's your movie. Go make the movie. And, um, and I got to do that. But uh, anyways, what happened was that Almost none of the changes that Mark, except for two scenes um, in Dead and Buried got changed because in the end they realized that what I had done was what should have been done. What, and what, wa what, walking away was the best thing to do. What's your theory? I mean, there's the cliche of the suits, you know, like I know what's happening here, you know, Costello, you go with Hardy and, you know, Laurel, you go with Abbott. 
you know, that kind of BS. What do you think drives these guys to decide that while their background is finance, what they really are good at is directing a movie? <laughs> they all think they're filmmakers. Everybody wants to be a director. You know, it's, it's I'm, I'm sure when when Mother Teresa got to heaven and God said, what do you want to do? She said, what I really want to do is direct. You know, I mean, everybody wants to direct. And um, which is bullshit because directing is, 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 is a whole other set of circumstances. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the, you, you talk about young filmmakers, everybody wants to, the, the first thing they want to do is direct. And you know what? Well, I'll give you a little, when we premiered Deathline, and I got all these raves and kudos and everybody was, you know, glad handing me and patting me on the back. This was before AIP got involved. Um, and uh, Paul Mislansky, after the, this, we had this big premiere in, in London and he took me aside. And he said, put his arm around me and said, it's a good movie, Gary but it's not a great movie. It's a good movie. And when you get a few years under your belt and a little life under your belt, then you'll make a great movie. He actually said to me, I don't know why I ever said that because Deadline is a great movie. But, um, but he was right because, I mean, if I was to do Deathline, you know, if I had done Deathline 20 years later, I could have made it better. Yeah. Uh, in some ways. I mean, as far as content. Mm. Um, <clears throat> uh, I mean, I, I understood the man immensely because I always felt like an outsider as a kid. And I, and, and I understood what, what I was doing with the man, what I, what I didn't understand was David and Sharon, or, you know, Alex and Pat's relationship. I, I had no idea what their relationship was. And it, it would have been, I, I don't think the film misses it, but I miss it. I think I, I could have done a lot better with their relationship and, uh, and, and, and gotten that to contrast more with the relationship between the man and his woman. Yeah. Humans, um, are the, humans are the tough part. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, my, my characters over the years, I think, have gotten better and better. I think that uh, the fact that there was a decade between Deathline and Dead and Buried was why I was able to define the characters in Dead and Buried as well. I mean, Dead and Buried is a film that just won't die either. Yeah. And and it, it just keeps coming back and back and back and back. And 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 Vice Squad, uh, I, I really got to get into characters, you know, and it's funny because Vincent Canby, I think, said it the best. He, 
when he when he reviewed uh, Deadline, he said, you know, Gary's trying to move away from horror, I guess, by doing this film. But he said, Ramrod's the best monster that anybody's ever put on the screen. <laughs> I, th- I want to ask you about that with um, you in uh, Dead and Buried. You've got some great dread and you've got some great scares. In particular, you have some really good jump scares. And jump scares get a lot of bad press among, you know, critics and some filmmakers as being, you know, low-hanging fruit. But I'm in particular thinking on the beach at the beginning where you had that jump scare when they ambushed the guy. Uh, how, How do you as a director come up with in pre-pro or whatever, how do you come up with, I'm going to shoot this and it's going to cut together in a way that's going to jump the audience. Well, I don't like to manipulate an audience and I don't, and I don't feel that I ever do that in a film. I I, I don't, I actually object to it when, when I see it in, in, in films that I go to where I feel that the audience is being manipulated um, but one of the things about doing scary movies, whether it's an action film or a horror film, <clears throat> I know what scares me. I'm very in touch with my fears and I, I, I know what scares me. I know what makes me cry. I know what makes me laugh. And, uh, and I know what, what really scares me deep down inside. It's something that I've been in touch with since I was a, a young boy. Um, and, and how really horror has, has affected me from the time I was a child. And um, from the time my brother, my older brother, my brother was like five and a half, six years older than me. And he, he took me to see House of Wax in 3D when I was probably five years old or something and just scared the fucking shit out of me. <laughs> and I mean, I, I shook from that forever. And, and that really, it, it kind of addicted me to horror. I mean, I loved the feeling of being scared. Um, but then some some things happened in my life where I experienced being scared for real instead of being scared vicariously, and that really started to define for me where what fear was, and and being able to to weigh vicarious fear against real fear, against actual life fear. And I, I started to understand how to deal with that and how to do it. And um, well, on the subject you know, of doing it, you're describing yourself as tightly in your pre-production, putting together your shots. That you're not just going into a production and getting coverage and finding it later. When you're looking for that scare, it, what is there anything in particular that you're saying? Okay, I need to have this direct things this way yeah well you know i I, when i sit down to write a script i do the first thing well the first thing i do is i write biographies for all the characters Mm. so that i know the characters like a best friend 
before I start to write the script. That way I have the character sitting next to me, helping me write the script. Um, instead of me manipulating the characters, they help me tell the story. And um, th the next thing I do is an emotional outline. I, I do a, a graph of where I want the script to take me, when I want it to scare me, when I want it to make me laugh, when I want it to make me cry, when I want it to just bore me a little bit. Um, and, I, and I really do this emotional outline. Then I start to put the script together to, with the characters and, and with the emotional outline and how, how I see moving through the film and where I see the highs and where I see the lows and how I set up, you know, the highs. I mean, that's why using comedy in horror for me, I never do comedy in the horror and I never do horror in the comedy. Yeah. I, 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 I set up a really good laugh before a really good scare. <laughs> and then after the scare, I kind of, you know, sand it down, you know, make a fine finish so that <laughs> we can move along and, 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 uh, and get ready for the next scare. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it's all planning, Andrew, it's all planning. Everything is planning. You know, the, uh, you know what, what? What's the expression that it, it, good luck is based on good planning? Or, <laughs> um, it's uh, you have to. I, I truly believe you have to know where you're going. Um, you know, and uh, you know, not so much of our life is planned out for us. I mean, if you want to drive somewhere, you you pull up ways. You know, and and which I love, I love ways and I use it every day, you know, but it was really fun when life was more of an adventure and you had to figure out how to get somewhere. Um, and, uh, and I hope my, my films will not become automatic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Speaking of things coming out of the blue, uh, you worked with uh, Jack Albertson uh, on that. Yes, film. I did. And how, I mean, we now know that while he's playing a character who dies in the film and deals with death every day, that he himself... He was dying. He was dying. We all knew that. And, and we took the chance that, that he wouldn't die until we were finished. Um, uh, Jack Albertson is someone I put up in that same box with Donald Pleasance. I mean, just... I have rarely enjoyed spending time and, and working with someone as much as Jack Albertson. He just was a joy. He's so funny and so talented. And he was, he was everybody's grandpa on the set. I mean, he just, everybody loved him. Every, he, he got more hugs. <laughs> And not not everyone on the set was aware of the fact that he was dying. We didn't. Uh, um, and and Jimmy Ferentino had a real hard time with that because he had just lost his father. 
And and Jack was so medicated at times that he would fall asleep on the set. And when and Jack insisted on doing his off camera. He would not let I mean with Donald was the same way. Donald was crazy about doing his off camera. And but Jack came from that same school of professional actors who said, no, the, the script supervisor is not sitting in for me. I'm, I'm going to be there and give to my fellow actor. So we were doing a close-up on Jimmy and Jack was in the chair and the cameras on Jimmy and, and all of a sudden Jimmy just loses it. I'm, I'm looking through the camera. I'm not seeing Jack. I'm looking, you know, at, at Jimmy. And I'm behind the camera and um, Jimmy just stops and he's and tears start running and it had nothing to do with the scene. He just starts crying and he just says, oh, my God. And he runs off the set. And locks himself in his trailer. And in the meantime, we uh, Jack had fallen asleep. And I thought, oh, Jimmy got upset because Jack fell asleep. And I go to talk to Jimmy. It had nothing to do with him being upset that Jack fell asleep. His he was at the hospital with his dad and he was in the middle of a conversation with his dad when his dad just, and it reminded him of, of, <laughs> of his dad dying. And he just freaked out. And Jimmy also knew that Jack was dying. I think Jimmy thought Jack had died. Yeah, yeah. At, at that moment, and to um, so it was it was hard. I mean, and his wife was there with him. His wife was absolutely fantastic, and uh, um, it was great. I mean, it was just working with him. He was there. We. You know, on the on the on the upcoming release of the new 4K, there's a lot of extras, and one of the extras is we kept an eight millimeter camera, um, a Super 8 camera, on the dolly, and anybody who wanted could come pick it up and shoot footage. And so, like the entire shoot, we had 15 hours of this eight millimeter footage, which we showed at the wrap party simultaneously we had we had the rap party in dobbs's laboratory <laughs> so we had all those projectors so we swapped those projectors which were all 16 we swapped them for eight millimeter projectors and we had that rut the 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 our footage running all the way through the party so everybody could see it anyways it just has laid dormant since then and i, I took it and i cut a half hour of it and uh which is an extra on the on the 4k and it's just really fun and there's you you could see jack would be come onto the set and he'd start singing and dancing for everybody because everybody loved knew that he was you know that's where he started as so, you know i don't know if you know this but dead and buried of course was jack's last picture he died right after we finished shooting and um, he actually died the evening that he did his ADR. We did ADR. He and his wife and I went to dinner. He went home. And the next morning I got up and had the radio on and they said, actor Jack 
Albertson passed away at Cedar Sinai Hospital early this morning. That's the worst part about being in this business is you hear about your friends dying on the radio or on television. It's, um, and it's happened to me too many times. But uh, yeah, he, he had gone home and during the night he got very sick and his wife called an ambulance and they took him to Cedar sinai and he passed that morning. And um, so, uh, but anyways, it's um, uh, his first movie was Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> He's the postal worker who picks up the envelope and says, hey, this letter is for Santa Claus. Maybe we should send it to the courthouse. That's Jack Albertson. Watch Miracle on 34th Street and you'll see. Um, and that was his first his first speaking part in a movie. So um, it's uh, <laughs> so I'm very proud to have been his last director. Somebody else who worked on the film with you, another key uh, co-creative was uh, Stan Winston. Another person I truly, truly, truly love. Um, that was Stan's first major, major movie. And uh, I just love Stan. I mean, Stan and I worked so closely on that, on that stuff. And he just, he was amazing. You, you know, the reconstruction scene of the, the hitchhiker's face, that was actually, we actually shot that. The, mounted the camera up on top. Those were Stan's hands, mm -hmm. and Stan actually doing the sculpting right there on camera. And then we, you know, did the transitions from stage to stage. Um, but those were actually Stan's hands uh, in, in Jack's in Jack's costume. Uh, and uh, you know, then we would, you know, then we set up Jack and just did reaction shots from Jack to make it look like it was him that was doing the work. But Stan was just a genius. He was a total genius. Crazy as a loon and, and, and smart as anybody I've ever met and, and such a talented sculptor. Just, I mean, you don't realize, you know, people think about special effects and blah, 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 but he was just such an artist. He could draw. He could he could sculpt. Um, uh, I mean, it just he was just amazing and just a, a wonderful person. It's I've been very lucky. I, I've been very lucky. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I've been very lucky to have worked with so many wonderful people over my career. Yeah, I mean, you could take uh, sculpt. Just take the sculpting part that you're talking about over and above all the other stuff. There's pre-Winston sculpting and there's post-Winston sculpting. He just raised the bar. Yeah, he absolutely raised the bar. I mean, well, he was a student of Dick Smith and Dick Smith wasn't exactly a slouch either. You no. know, when I did Poltergeist 3, Stan wasn't available and Stan said to me, why don't you use my teacher? <laughs> I said, I thought he was retiring. And he said, oh, no, I talked to him. And he said he'd love to do Poltergeist 3. So I, I had I had the professor 
on Poltergeist 3. Um, and, you know, Dick, Dick was unbelievable too. I mean, Dick invented all that stuff. Stan refined it and took it to a new level of art, but Dick Smith invented all that stuff. Certainly the stage blood that we are using now, I mean, you could trace right back to Dick. Well, and his prosthetics and, you know, if, if the materials that had existed by the time Stan was doing his thing, you know, the, the latex had come to the, to the level that it had come to in the other chemistries. Um, I can imagine what Dick could have done with that. But, you know, uh, Dick was a funny guy and a great guy. He, he was really, he was really awesome, a great person. Something I wanted to ask you about Stan. In interviews, Stan has described being very um, perfectionistic and really driven on this picture to really like make his mark, uh, in particular with the uh, eyeball stabbing scene. Um, and he described in one interview, like just kind of throwing a little uh, fit on set. And I was curious as a director working with really skilled, you know, co-creatives, what's your method for working with people when they're just really driving hard on their slice of the, of the production? The only time Stan had a fit was, um, the burned head. Hmm. Um, he didn't realize that the, 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 the truck was going to be upside down. I mean, you know, he read it in the script, but he didn't pay attention to it, I guess. And uh, I mean, he was kind of new to filmmaking himself at that point. So he, he didn't quite understand that the, that, and when he came on the set and saw the, you know, and we were installing, you know, the thing and um, he said, no, you got to turn the truck over. And I said, well, I can't, I mean, I'm not set up to turn the truck. He said, I don't want that head upside down. Nobody will realize how great it is if it's upside down. And uh, I said, no, it has to be upside down. I mean, it, you know, it, it's the whole thing is that it's just hanging there. He said, well, I didn't design it to be upside down. You have to turn the truck over before you. And I said, how am I going to do that? And when we're out there on location, I don't have it rigged so that I can turn the truck over. I mean, I would have had to abandon the shoot at that point and completely redo it and rethink the whole scene. And I said, I can't stand. He just got really pissed off and he pouted for a few hours and then we finally hugged and kissed and made up. <laughs> but he was right. I mean, I, I, I think that that the screaming head probably would have been, the, the screaming burned head would have been, had more impact right side up. Interesting. But I, 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 I thought he understood that when he designed the, uh, uh, you know, the, the prosthetic, because upside down, it would have been better if they had tilted forward and the jaw went to the chest as opposed to, you know, leaning back and moving away from camera like it did. 
Um, and he could have done that had he understood it. And it's both of our faults. We should have talked about it more. But, um, and, and I apologized to him. He apologized to me and we moved on from it. The, the screaming head still has quite an impact in the movie. Now, I have to ask you this question. When you first started out, uh, you know, you didn't have a movie camera in your pocket as you walked through your life. You know, now with the iPhone, you do. Are, do you experiment with that as, as an experienced visual filmmaker? You know, if it would have if it would have existed earlier in my career, uh, maybe. But I mean, you know, the whole advent of the iPhone and everything has almost been since I've retired. And um, uh, although I, I, you know, I walk around with, I used to walk around, you know, with an icon hanging around my neck, and um, and I always shot. Uh, and um, it's not that long now since you had a had a camera in your pocket. And at the beginning, the cameras and telephone and phones were really crappy. And as I've said to you, um, I, I use a 50 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera most of the time. That's my choice of, uh, and it's not until like I just got myself um, an iPhone 12 Pro Max, which actually you can actually duplicate what a 50 millimeter lens looks like. It, it's not exactly the same, but you can you can go to a wide aperture and a faster exposure and get the depth of field that you can get on a on a on a 50 and a 35. So lately, I have been shooting, but I haven't been able to use that in my filmmaking because I'm not making any films yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting sucked back in, but. You sound like a war horse that's heard a trumpet in the distance. Yeah. Well, you know what? I've missed it. I mean, it was, I made a choice. I made my choice when, when torture porn became the excuse for horror films. Uh, if I'm sounding derogatory on some purpose, I, I hated torture porn. Yeah. Um, not, not my kind of filmmaking. And, uh, and it's what horror became. I mean, it's what Eli Roth wrought on us. Um, and I'm, and, and, where, where do you draw the, I, I am curious, you can speak to this in a way a lot of other people can't. You're accused of heavy-handed gore with your first film. And what you're describing with torture porn is sometimes lumped in with that kind of pre-gore. How do you, where's your defining line? How do you say that's telling horror and that's, you know, what that it's is? When it's when, when it's laid on with a palette knife. Um, and <clears throat> I don't think that Deathline didn't have any, you know, like uh, the, the gore and the horror in Deathline were not laid on. It was part of what the whole thing was about. And it was very human. 
and it was very real. And it, 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 was, it was documenting a very human situation. The, um, the man in Deathline had no idea that he was doing anything wrong. Uh, he was a victim. And in order to show how society had victimized him, I had no choice but to put in the gore and stuff. But it, it wasn't uh, extraneous in any way, shape, or form. And I have never done extraneous violence in any of my films. And in fact, <clears throat> to the most part, I try to make violence as ugly as possible. I, I want violence to be offensive. Yeah. Because I personally abhor violence and I and and that's why I make violent films because my my films are anti-violence films. Um you know, Vice Squad, which is why it's one of my favorite films, was my whole thing was to talk about violence against women and show how violence against women is as ugly a thing as could possibly happen. And I didn't make the violence against women titillating. I didn't make the sex in, in, in Vice Squad titillating. It was ugly. And it was meant to be ugly. <clears throat> and it was meant to put you off, not to excite you. Mm. And it worked, you know. And I mean, Vice Squad's another film that just doesn't die. It just, it's there. I mean, they just did another Blu-ray of it. I mean, it's, it's, um, and I, and I think it's because of content. <clears throat> and, um, no, I, I just, I don't do unnecessary violence and I don't do unnecessary gore. It's always part of the story. And when you just take a thing and you just, you know, that's why they call it torture porn because you know, you, pornography, porno films is some great sex scenes. And then you put a stupid, shitty, badly acted story around it. And torture porn's the same thing. I mean, the, torture porn doesn't call itself torture porn. We we who don't like it call it that because it's get a few gory scenes that are extraneous to anything and then put a story around it. And don't worry about if the story makes sense or not. Yep. Because the only reason you're making the, the film is to is to show off the porn, the sex scenes. Yeah. What's the difference if it's sex or or, or gory violence, whether it gets yeah. banned in Kansas or not. Yeah, you know it's, um, and I, I'm not interested in in basing a film on the gore or on the violence. I like to tell a story, and if you can't tell a story, you know, and I've been just so many of these films made that. But now it seems like but it, they've gone away. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So now maybe possibly we might see another Gary Sherman film. It's possible. I mean, people are talking to me. I haven't decided on anything yet. Um, Cargill, you know, see Robert Cargill. Yeah. He's, he's one who's been pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to make a movie. And, uh, 
I love Cargill. He's, he's a great guy and an unbelievable writer. I actually, last week I read his new novel, which is, which I will tell you, everybody should go out and buy, which is Day Zero. And it is, it is just an amazing book. I won't tell you anything about it, but go read it. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, the movies he's made and he's got Black Phone coming up, which is going to be unbelievable. Uh, but anyways, you know, Cargill, Cargill sat down with me one day and said, okay, if you were going to write another movie, what would it be? Do you have a story? And I said, you know, there's one that keeps circling my head and I pitched it to him. <laughs> and he went nuts over it. He says, write it, write it. I said, no, you have to co-write it with me. And then I'll direct it. You produce it and I'll direct it. And he said, you got a deal. And so we've been talking about it. We, we haven't done anything with it yet, but we talk about it a lot. And, uh, and I'm working on a television project, which I don't really want to talk about because I'm, I'm very superstitious. But I've got an offer on a, on a television series that I've co-written the pitch with Jeremy Dyson. And I, I've never had more fun working with anybody. Jeremy's so amazing. Edgar Wright introduced us to each other because I told Edgar I had this idea and that I wanted a British co-writer. And Edgar says, I'll, come, I'll find you somebody. And he comes back to me and he says, how about Jeremy Dyson? I said, are you kidding? I said, this is a spec project. <clears throat> Jeremy Dyson's like the busiest writer in Britain. And uh, he said, well, he's already said yes. <laughs> I told him what it was and I told him it would be working with you. And he said, Deathline was his inspiration to become a writer which I had no idea. His first book was a, a series of short stories and the main short story was one called Deep City, which was an ode to Deathline. Wow. And he said, so anyways, Edgar introduced us via Zoom <clears throat> and except for the fact that he's about half my age, um, he and I are twins from different mothers um we just uh, get on like crazy and i just uh he's amazing he's absolutely amazing we have so much commonality it, it's it's unbelievable and i had no idea i mean we're, we're both jewish which i had no idea he was jewish um he he grew up you know in in london in a jewish family my mother's a Jewish Londoner, oh. and my whole family is is my. I have more family in London than I do here, and um, which is how I ended up in England. I was going to ask, yeah, but um, <clears throat> so we we have hope then for more Gary Marsh, uh, Gary Sherman. Well, it's it's very possible. We we have an offer on this thing. Uh, we'll see what happens, and um, it's a television series. And I'm not going to say what it's about. 
<laughs> Hope for Gary Sherman fans. All right. And it will be a, a, a shot in, 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 in London television series. Horror, obviously. Yeah. Comedy and horror is, is, is what I think my two best films have been. Um, that was the other thing about Poltergeist that, I mean, I, I, what I love about Poltergeist was the effects, everything else about the film I don't like. Um, and, and there was really no room for comedy in it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Brian and Brian Taggart also, may he rest in peace. Everybody I've worked with is dead. Um, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard being my age because, you know, I think uh, Eugene O'Neill said it the best. He said um, that, he said, I always thought that aging was about vanity, but it's really about losing everyone you love. Wrinkles don't mean shit. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Paraphrase. But um, it's true. Getting older is about losing the people you love. And, uh, you know, and I, I come from a family where everybody lives into their hundreds. So um, um, you're stuck with me for a long time. My dad, my dad was 102. My grandmother was 105. Uh, and uh, everybody just lives forever in my family. Well, so. from the point of view of your fans, I mean, that's helpful for us. Yeah, so I still got another 30 years Ooh. that should you, you'll be stuck with me. <laughs> well, good. That was part two of my interview with writer-director Gary Sherman. Next time, we'll look at his big-budget practical effects epic, Poltergeist 3. Subscribe to this bloody business and join me each week as we go behind the scenes for more tantalizing tales of horror filmmaking. Until next time, I'm Andrew Johnson Schmidt, and that's a wrap. (laughs) 